Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Seven Sage LSAT podcast. I'm Henry Ewing, and I'm joined with my excellent co-host, Asta Sinha. Super excited for today's episode. It's going to be a little bit different than the ones that we released in the past. We've gone over tips and tricks for starting to study, big things to be looking out for. Today, we're going back to the basics, the very, very beginning of this test. Back to square one. We're calling this episode the LSAT Dictionary because we're going to go over what I think are the most important vocab words almost to help you get a conceptual understanding of this test. If you understand all of the words and terms that we're going to go over over the course of today's episode, I think you're in a really, really good place to ace this test. And that might be overstating it, but what do you think, Henry? No, I I agree. I definitely think that understanding the language of the test and the language of studying and or whatever resource you're using to study is incredibly important. If you don't know what certain words mean when you're studying, it's going to be very hard to to make progress if you're constantly trying to suss out what they're trying to talk about. If your book is in Chinese, you got to learn to speak Chinese or read Chinese first. Now, of course, it's not that difficult. It's not that yeah, difficult. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. But I, I do like the way you put it in that I really do think studying for this test in some ways is kind of like learning a foreign language. I think we talked about this in maybe the very first episode that my brain has forever been altered after having mastered this test. Like I mm, think about things mastered. differently. I mean, I think I've mastered this test. Yeah. I think you have too. We've spent God knows how many hours on this test, but yeah, I hope so. Po- <laughs> yeah, really. But at this point, like when I look at an argument or when I look at an LSAT question, there are things that are happening in my brain that are involuntary. I am not choosing to identify the things that I am in an argument. It is happening against my will. So the more familiar you get with these things, the better you understand them. I think the easier your life becomes with this test because you're not having to think about things. It's automatic. You understand it. You identify identify it. Looking for the conclusion of an argument, again, is not something that I do voluntarily. I wish I could stop. I wish I could just read something for what it is, but I cannot anymore. I will automatically reach for the conclusion, the different parts, and that's what we're talking about today. Mm, Very nice. Very nice. So, I mean, I guess it's a good segue. I'm hearing about... How should I think of an argument, Asa? (laughs) Uh, Like, what's the... What what are... (laughs) I, I it sounds silly, but what are the like the the fundamentals of an argument, the nuts and bolts, if you will? No, that that is a great question and definitely not something we had prescripted. So when you're thinking of an <laughs> argument, <laughs> when you're thinking of an argument in in the simplest terms, you're trying to convince someone of a claim. You're trying to convince someone that what you're saying is true, is right, is valid, and that claim, that claim that you're trying to convince someone of, that's your conclusion, and that's the fundamental part of an argument. An argument is not an argument without a conclusion, and that word, the conclusion, I think is the first part of our little vocab lesson that we're doing here to understand a conclusion how to identify it what it is where it falls in an argument is essential so we've got a a claim a conclusion henry can you give me an example of i don't know a claim that you try to convince me of yeah i mean we're talking about earlier the claim that chinese food is the best food in the world why should i believe that well i haven't really offered you any evidence yet so what i'm hearing is i should probably be offering you some evidence in order to believe that claim if i just told you that you wouldn't believe it or if you were a, a diligent lsat taker you're not just <laughs> going to take that at face value that, that chinese food is the best dude in the world you'd say hey well give me some reasons to think that henry give me some evidence that chinese food is the best food in the world and we're using the word evidence and the the evidence that i offer you are going is going to be premises premises to support the idea Wait, Wait, I have a question. Mm, is the plural me. of premise premises or premises? Did I say premises? You said premises, but I have I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I actually have no idea. It's like stimu- stimulus. It's stimuli. Yeah, but it would it be premise. 
Premi. Premies. So I've derailed us, but I do want to look that the up. The premises. Feel like we should. The premise. It's like pre- <laughs> no. That's even worse. Anyways. Yeah, whatever the plural of that is, the evidence that you bring to support your claim, to support your conclusion, is your premise or multiple of those things. So that's the core. That's an argument. Premise plus conclusion equals argument. Right. So in the case of me convincing you with Chinese food, I might offer like, hey, salty food is really good. Even the best. Chinese food is the saltiest. I don't know if that's the best argument. Therefore, right? Therefore... Chinese food is the best food. I don't know if that's a a great argument. I I probably wouldn't agree with that. I might not be totally convinced, but at the very least, the very least I've offered you something to go on. I've offered you some evidence that, yeah, Chinese food is pretty good. You're not just going to have to take me at face value. You'd say, okay, yeah, I like salty food. Okay, Chinese food is salty. All right, yeah, I see why Chinese food might be the best in the world. I think we'll talk about further why that is a pretty flawed argument in in many ways. And And it's not, by the way, it's not because that, Salty food, it, it, like you don't agree with salty food being the best. There's a lot of other errors there. I'm not very good at arguments. It's terrible. <laughs> Goodness gracious, Henry, your entire career is a lie. But the point is, all that stuff that you talked about with salty food being the best, whatever, that information, that evidence, that premise is what turned your claim into an argument. That's, that's what kind of closed the gap there of this just being a sentence. Chinese food is the best food ever. Now that you've added some evidence, you've added that premise, it takes it over and now we've created this argument. Whether it's a good or a bad argument is not what's important here. But what's important to remember is if you're looking at a set of words or set of sentences on the LSAT, premise plus conclusion equals argument. And in this case, the premises are offering support, support to the conclusion. What is support? So support is going to be something in simplest terms. I guess the way that I like to explain it to my students is something that makes you more likely to believe the conclusion. Yes. Is it's not necessarily support isn't always going to be airtight. It doesn't always mean that your conclusion is 100% valid. But if something is supporting the conclusion, it's just making you more likely to believe that it's true. Which is why when you look at a weekend question on the LSAT, the answer choice is just going to make you less likely to believe the conclusion is true. If you're looking at a strengthening question, it's going to make you even more likely to believe the conclusion is true. But that's essentially what it means for a premise to support the conclusion. So it's not, it doesn't need to make the conclusion true 100% of the time, just more likely to be true. I guess if we went back to the Chinese food example, if you agree that salty food is good, by saying that Chinese food is salty, at the very least, you're offering that Chinese food has some positive attribute. You're making it more likely to be true. That is the best. Now, you might not agree with that. And I would, if you were giving me that argument or if I was giving you that argument, I am giving you that argument. I don't want you to believe that (laughs) just based on that evidence. (laughs) Nevertheless, I think you would agree that at the very least, you're offering a little bit of, or I've offered a little bit of support to the idea that Chinese food is the best in the world. Exactly. So we've got our first two big ideas covered. Premise, conclusion. Now, Henry, what happens if there are a couple of extra words or sentences in an argument that aren't directly supporting the conclusion or are not the conclusion themselves? What is that? So what I'm hearing you describe is context. Yes. Context generally introduces an argument and it's used on the LSAT to make it a little bit less weird. (laughs) I don't know. That's that's Sometimes it's a little less weird. Well, for example, it would be really weird if I came up to you and just said, gave you an argument for why Chinese food is the best in the world. Absolutely nothing. I just walked up to you and I said, you're right. Okay. Yeah. That's most things I say. (laughs) (laughs) Very out of pocket, right? In context, 
introduce would introduce that argument. For example, if we were already having a conversation about different foods around the world from different cultures, that would provide context for my argument that Chinese food is the best in the world. So I might say like, yes, Indian food's great. And also British food is fine. British food? I don't, is, I don't know. I, 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 what I, is I, British food? I, I, I was going to say British food is bad, but I didn't just want to dunk on British food. <laughs> <laughs> so I said British food is fine. <laughs> but if I had to like, in, like create a picture Fish in my chips. head. Fish and chips? Come oh, on. Oh, fair. It's, don't they also do like beans and, on toast? Yeah, beans on toast. Yeah, an English breakfast. Crazy. Uh, I think it's like beans, blood sausage, toast. It's great. Ooh, yikes. Okay, great. yeah. British food not... is great, actually. I mean, you're don't don't yuck my yum, Asa. In, 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 in any case, in any case, crazy thing to say. The fact that British food is good or Indian food is good doesn't support the idea or doesn't offer support for the idea that Chinese food is the best in the world. But I could use that as a jumping off point to introduce my argument by saying like, hey, we're talking about all these foods around the world. And now my argument here, Chinese food is salty. Salty food is good. Chinese food is the best in the world. And so context just introduces that. I think another thing that context can do sometimes is provide a definition of something or explain something that is going to be talked about in the premise or in the conclusion. What I'm remembering right now is this one LR problem that we've been talking a lot about recently about polar bears and navigation. And the context of that argument is just laying out the definition of navigation. And then the entire argument is just saying, can or cannot polar bears navigate, essentially. So context can be a couple of things. It can introduce the idea. It can give a definition that's important to the argument later on. But it's not, in either case, it's not directly supporting the conclusion. It's just kind of standing on its own on the side. And those three things together basically make up the core of every single LR stimulus that you're going to see on the test. Premise, conclusion context that's pretty much it yeah no i that's it we're done end of podcast everyone gets a 180 <laughs> shuts down that's yes. all you yeah, need exactly <laughs> we are out of jobs <laughs> goodness that's all it took wow that's what I, that's what i say have you seen um it's not the big short margin call no what you seen margin call there's a speech at at the end of margin call where he's like i i realize that success today means effectively ending our careers i feel like that's what we're doing right now just the, just the better we get bit. yeah six, success on the podcast is, i do watch i don't know why i watch a ton of movies I, i'm just bored <laughs> i feel like every episode you have some either before or like during or after the recording some reference to some movie at some point anyways so now we have <laughs> <laughs> yeah the first, moving on <laughs> the first three words context premise can conclusion that is going to be the very beginning i think of your studying your launching pad for really acing this test so now once you get past that kind of introductory concept we can talk about what different parts of a conclusion of a premise different parts within the argument actually are and a really common one that you're going to see over and over again and i am going to insist that you master if you really want to do the very best that you can on this test is a conditional statement henry Walk me through the different parts of a conditional statement. What is a conditional statement? Yeah, so I I think are we we are going to be talking more about conditionals later on, but in terms of for the sake of understanding this on the LSAT dictionary, a conditional statement is a statement that has a sufficient condition and a necessary condition. Now, now what are those? Let's think of an if then statement. If I watch a lot of movies, then or no let's do this if henry watches a lot of movies asta is going to think henry is a nerd okay that's the sentence that's the conditional statement so <laughs> go ahead no no, no I, I agree so if henry watches a lot of movies then asta is going to think that 
Henry's a nerd. So the the if part of that statement, if Henry watches a lot of movies, that is the sufficient condition. We call it sufficient, but I, I like to think of the sufficient condition as something that is enough to bring about the necessary condition. So in this case, the sufficient condition of Henry watching a bunch of movies is enough to bring about the necessary condition that Asta is going to make fun of Henry. So if you look at that if-then statement, the if part of the statement is our sufficient condition, and the then part of the statement is our necessary condition. That's a very brief way to think about that. Yeah, but I think it's important to understand the words and kind of what they mean. Like, and in, in the way that I like to think about it, I'm a little bit more of kind of a visual learner. So in my head, it's like, okay, if the thing on the left happens, then the thing on the right has to happen too. The thing on the left is going to cause the thing on the right to happen. And when I say left and right, I'm meaning the left being the if statement, the right being the then statement. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, given that this is a an audio podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> just I, I feel like I have to describe it a little bit. The, the left side, there's an arrow between the sufficient and necessary condition. <laughs> The left side is the sufficient. The arrow points to the necessary condition. If you've studied, you've probably seen that. I just feel like I should describe that for the no, sake of... No, that's valid. That's valid. But I, I think that like visualizing it that way just makes it a little bit easier for me to understand that the if statement is going to cause the thing on the right, the necessary assumption or necessary condition to trigger. So again, that's a very brief introduction to sufficient and necessary conditions, what a conditional statement is, but it's essentially giving us a rule. It's essentially telling us if this thing happens and this other thing is going to happen. And that can be really important to understanding kind of the core of an argument so that you know what scope that the argument's actually talking about. Argument could be talking about everything that has ever happened in the world ever, or it could just be talking about one specific condition. If this thing happens, then this other thing will happen. I was just wanting to mention too, like the conditionals, they're going to come up a lot in your studying. So it's very important to get comfortable with this sufficient condition or the word sufficient condition and necessary condition, even though like they are confusing. That's the language of the test and, and, and getting used to that. So when you see sufficient, I, I like to just think this is enough to bring about something. I guess to make it maybe a little more grounded to, to all of you, if you want to get a good score on the test, you need to study. <laughs> so getting a good score then on the test to is enough to bring about the idea that you have studied before. Very good. Very Fair good. enough. That makes sense. So cool. We've gotten through kind of the vast majority of our, our vocab lesson, I guess. We know what context is in an argument. We know what a premise is. We know what conclusion is. We know that premise plus conclusion equals argument. And then we know what a conditional statement is. We know a conditional statement contains a sufficient condition that is enough to bring about the necessary condition. So there's just two more phrases that I want to introduce to you guys. And then we'll actually go over an example of how all of this turns into an actual argument. So the first one is an indicator. These indicators, I feel like, get everybody up in arms when it comes to this test. If you use 7Sage, at least, there's different groups of indicators. Other platforms teach them in different ways. But essentially, they are words that indicate either a sufficient or necessary condition, something else that's about to happen. So a couple of examples include unless, or, but, like different things that indicate that something is happening here. I think very, very commonly, people use indicators for this sufficient condition and the necessary condition. For example, when we're talking, if this happens, well, the if there is an indicator, it's indicating that what's following is going to be the sufficient assumption or, or the sufficient condition. Then is an indicator for the necessary condition. For example, now those aren't the only indicators. There's a whole hodgepodge of indicators <laughs> out there. I mean, th there really are 
There, there are many of them. Only is another one. And I think there's too many, honestly, for us to sufficiently make our way through oh them. Oh my God. I know I had you to do it every, every episode, every episode. Come on. But there's too many for us to, to go through. But when you see the word indicator, what Austin said, it's, it, I hate that we're using the word indicating for indicator. <laughs> it's like introducing. I need to look up it's inter- marking. Yeah, it, it, marking. It's marking. It's marking well, what this thing is. Now, that's not only limited to sufficient condition and necessary condition. There are things like context indicators. But, for example, or however, generally indicates a turn to, indicates a turn to the author's argument. So when you see words like that, it's, it's I, I mean, how important are indicators? How are, do you, do you think about indicators now? No. So that, that's something that I, I do want to talk a little bit about. I feel like especially when you're at the beginning of your studying, memorizing a list of indicators is something that a lot of people reach to do, make flashcards, do all these things. And while I, I don't, I don't want to say that it's not helpful to do that. I just want to go back to what I was talking about earlier in the episode that a lot of the ways that I I look at this test at this point are automatic. I'm not really thinking about them. I'm not choosing to do them. So instead of just assigning all of these words to memory, I would much rather you just get a conceptual understanding of what they mean and what they introduce so that you can read a sentence with an indicator and understand what it means, be able to turn it into an if-then statement, again, automatically. So thinking about indicators, they are still helpful to me, but I'm not consciously thinking about them. If I see the word unless or either or or but or however, if I see these words on the test, I'm reading it at face value and I'm understanding what it means. I don't need to sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to know that this is a a group four indicator and I'm going to negate the whatever and do all this. No, I'm just I'm understanding what it means as I'm reading it. So all of that to say, it's important to understand. It's important to identify, not necessarily to commit to memory. Yeah, I think it's a great jumping off point. So if you're starting from truly a basic level, you're not going to be able to just intuitively read or understand what the sufficient condition is or what the necessary condition is. You're probably going to rely on these indicators and what you do when you see each indicator. However, once you (laughs) memorize, however, (laughs) once you memorize them, it's important to not stop there. I, I really encourage a lot of my clients who know the indicators, to sit down and think, well, I know I'm supposed to do this in this situation, negate the sufficient condition, yada, yada, yada. I like to ask them, though, why? Why are you doing this? The way I like to think of it is when I was really young, I like really wanted a skateboard. And my parents told me, if you learn how to read, then we'll get you a skateboard. How old were you when you learned how to read? <laughs> okay, I was like five. Or it, it's not, I wasn't a good reader. I don't know when. I was, it was young. I was young, okay? okay. <laughs> let's, let's not get caught up in the details. <laughs> Okay, okay, my bad, my bad. In any case, though, what I did was I didn't know how to read, but I memorized, I memorized a book. And I memorized what the sentence looked like in order for me to say the sentence. I wasn't actually reading. I was just looking at the shape and knowing what to say. Now, similarly, if you memorize the indicators, you'll be able to look at the shape of the sentence and know what to do. But you're not really understanding, well, why is it that I'm doing this? And so going that extra step further after you've done that memorization is very, I don't want to say very, it is, it is, I think it is important. You want to keep moving. You don't want to just stop at, okay, I know what to do in this situation, fighting to understand that why. And then once you get that why, you're not even going to think of it indicators like what Asta said. I don't think about indicators at all. I just read the sentence and I know immediately what the sufficient condition is and what the necessary condition is because I've done that work. I first started by memorizing what do I do in this situation? I see only what does that mean? What do I do? And then I went that step further. Well, why is it that this spits out 
X conditional, spending that additional time thinking. And I, we might go further into that, but I, I, I want to make sure I'm highlighting that as a, a process to, to go through. Yeah, no. And we have we have future episodes on conditionals. We have future episodes on assumptions. We're going to go like really deep into the theory behind all of these things. But that's when we're thinking about vocab, like that's one set of words that I think a lot of people spend a lot of time on when they're first starting to study for this test. I, I really like the way you put it. Like it's memorizing it is a good place to start, but you cannot stop there. You have to, you don't have to, but I think you should build a good conceptual understanding of what those things do. So cool. We got one last vocab word before we get to an actual tangible example and see how this plays out. And it's relatively simple, referential phrasing. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. So referential phrasing are words that are referring back to a previous concept. A very common referential word is, I think we use it now, pronouns like he, them, they, her, she. Those don't talk about, a like out of context, those don't talk about a specific person. You don't know who I'm talking about by just word, say the word she is my best friend. Well, who is that? If I lead, though, by saying like, Asa is my favorite coworker. <laughs> She is my best friend. <laughs> well, the she is referential phrasing. It's referring back to who? It's referring back to Asta. And so when you're reading through a stimulus and you see referential phrasing, you see she, them, it's. Those. Those, yeah. yeah. You, what you want to do is you want to go back and, and reread that sentence by replacing that referential phrasing with whatever it's talking about. Again, that gets hard or that can be hard. Usually it's the immediately pre yeah, preceding concept. For example, if we're talking Jenny... Jenny is great and Asta is amazing. She is my best friend. Well, she is going to refer back to the, the first she. So that's our, or the closest she, which is Asta. And yeah, so referential phrasing, when you see it, the, the reason we're mentioning it is on, on this test, they will often try to get you by using referential phrasing to confuse things, to confuse or, or make, make a conditional or the meaning of a sentence more obscure by referring back to things. It might even be referring to something in the context or a concept in the context. I, I really just want to point out really quick that it's not just LR where referential phrasing comes into play. RC is one of my favorite sections in general and one of my favorite sections to teach. But in RC, they do that all the friggin' time. Like they are just constantly using these super annoying like referential phrasings to to reference back to something that happened like, I don't know, two paragraphs ago. Like they're just being really obnoxious about it. And I think a lot of times RC passages that are deemed five-star passages or really difficult passages are not all the time, but a lot of times are just difficult because someone or the average reader will miss a really key referential phrase or they'll misunderstand a really key referential phrase. Or even those RC questions where they are asking you to define a word and how it's used in context, well, the way that it's used in context is most likely going to be dependent on referential phrasing. And it's like this one key con I am like about to like jump out of my chair. I feel very passionately about this. It's like this one concept <laughs> that people miss all the time when it comes to RC, but it's such a game changer. Anyways, I think it's super important if you're not constantly replacing referential phrases with whatever it is actually referring to as you're reading LR, RC, real life, whatever it is, you should. Yeah, I think that alone often 
just gets people, I don't want to say so many points, but it, it gets people points on this test. Very easy fix it I have help. with my clients. No, for sure. Is they say they don't understand a stimulus. And I say, well, they're using they here. What is they referring to? They find out, or they, uh, my, my client, my, my client finds out what they is referring to. <laughs> there it is. You see, it's confusing. My client finds out what they is referring to and immediately it clicks for them. It's a very simple fix. It, may, it brings a whole lot of clarity to the stimulus. And so that's why it's, it's important. For sure. So brief rundown on what we just covered here. What's an argument? It is premise plus conclusion. Sometimes an argument will also include context. Within an argument, you might also see conditional statements. So an if-then statement, a sufficient to a necessary condition. You'll see indicators, unless or however, but only blah, blah, blah. And then you'll also see referential phrasing. And if you understand those words inside and out, I think you are in a really, really good spot to do well on this test. I think it's, I won't say necessary or sufficient, but I think it's a very crucial component of really mastering this test. Yeah, I don't have the data to say it's necessary. <laughs> but I, I would honestly be willing, I'd be comfortable saying that it's necessary <laughs> like, to, to, to know what those mean. I can comfortably, I feel like I can comfortably say that. <laughs> Good God. All right, so let's, let's, get, let's talk about this in terms of an example. Yeah. All right, Henry, now that we've gone over all of the important words, things that we need to know, our LSAT dictionary, let's go into an actual example of how all these things look once they're put together. So give me an example. I've got one written and prepared for you just here. Here it goes. Some people say everyone loves animals, but if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos and flamingos don't like people. Therefore, if you are at the zoo, you will be killed by flamingos. <laughs> What a, wild, what a weird... See, I knew that was coming, but it was still so <laughs> I, jarring to just hear you say. <laughs> we wrote this like a week ago. <laughs> we did. You will be killed by flamingos. Yeah, it's a little, a little out of pocket. But hey, zany is what we do here at Seven Sage. We put the Z <laughs> in Seven Sage. <laughs> the what? Is there a Z in Seven Sage? No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's break down this insane argument piece by piece. So the first part that you said was some people say everyone loves animals. Mm. Okay. Some people love, some people say everyone loves animals. Interesting. Now, one thing I'm thinking about this is this is context. Why do I think this? Yeah. If you look at the following sentence, it begins with the word but. Now, but, but is an indicator. It's a context indicator. I love that you're highlighting this as if our listeners Sorry, yeah, can I, see I'm like, what I'm like, I'm like in live class mode right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right, right? The first part of this is, is context because what happens right after that sentence, some people say everyone loves animals, is the word but. We just talked about what different types of indicators are, what they can mean. And this word but is introducing the actual argument. Right, so things that are coming before context, things that are coming after the but, argument. Is the argument. So let's see what the first part of this argument says. So it says, but if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos. So what's that? Again, we have more indicated words. This looks like a conditional. How do I know that? Well, first we have this indicator if, if indicating sufficient condition. So if you're at the zoo, that is enough to bring about the fact that you're going to see flamingos. 
So if you go to the zoo, sufficient condition, you're going to see flamingos. Necessary condition. You must. There is no world in which you go to the zoo and you don't see flamingos. It is necessary that if you are at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos. And I guess just to add too, this is in the context, I shouldn't say context, but this is in the world of the argument. Obviously, you and I know it's entirely possible to go to the zoo and not see flamingos. If you're me, I hate flamingos. I'm scared of them. You hate flamingos? Yeah, they're the worst. You're from Florida, though, so I guess you're pretty used to them. Are there any real flamingos in Florida? Is that a thing? I I don't know if anyone's ever associated Florida with flamingos. Gators, I get a lot. I've seen a lot of gators before. Wait, stop. That is unequivocally wrong. Florida is 100% associated with flamingos. Am am I wrong on that? I... Look, as someone who was like born and raised, technically born and raised in the state of Florida, flamingos are not a Florida thing. Gators are a Florida thing. You, what would you know about Florida? Don't mansplain what's Sorry. in flamingos or what's in I Florida to me. If you're Henry, then you're a mansplainer. <laughs> in any case, so we have that. That's one conditional. Now, okay, we have a following sentence that says flamingos don't like people. Now, we're not getting any clear indicators here. They say that flamingos don't like people, but we can actually draw a conditional from this. What conditional? Well, if we know that flamingos don't like people, we could say that being a flamingo is enough to say that you don't like people. Yeah. So if you are a flamingo, then you don't like people. All right. And then the following, we get a sentence that says, therefore. Bing, bing, bing. All right. Why are you giving me that bing, 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 also? (laughs) (laughs) Because the word therefore is another indicator, and it's a very common indicator to introduce a conclusion. More often than not, if you see the word therefore, whatever's about to, you know, for is a conclusion. What's about to come after it is the conclusion, and that's exactly what's happening here. So therefore, if you are at the zoo, you will be killed. Right. So that's that's what I'm trying to convince you of. Now, if this is our conclusion... That's the claim. The other sentences are going to be premises that support this idea, ideally. The idea that if you're at the zoo, you're going to be killed at flam- by flamingos. What's your, what are your thoughts on this argument? Good? Bad? It sucks. Oh my god, it's a god-awful argument. Because let's think about it. The claim is that if you are at the zoo, you will be killed by flamingos. And the support, the premise that I'm getting to support that idea is that if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos and flamingos don't like people. That's it. That's all I know. And from that, we're jumping and saying that (laughs) flamingos are going to go on a murderous rampage when you're at the zoo. Nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of people I don't like. Some of them are still alive. That's all you need to know. Not liking is not sufficient to bring about killing. confessing to murder on the Seven Sage Elsa podcast? No, 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 no. I would never. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Anyways, so when we're looking at this, what we're, what we're seeing is a lot of different components of a very common argument. We can even amend this just a little bit to add in some referential f- phrasing. So what if instead the premise said, if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos and they don't like people? Well, what's the they referring to? Mm, well, the they would refer to the flamingos. That's the, uh, the, the concept that comes immediately before the they. So the they refers back to the flamingos. So if you were doing this, you would reread that and say, instead of, and they don't like people, you'd replace the they with flamingos. Exactly. And that is a god-awful argument, but it encapsulates all of the different vocab words that we just talked about, about what makes up a common LSAT argument. And we can go a step further and kind of talk about assumptions really quickly. What assumptions are being 
made or could be introduced in this argument to actually make it valid. Because right now, this is not a valid argument. My support, my premise doesn't actually lead me to my conclusion. Because one more time, just to make sure it's in your brain, if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos and they don't like people. Therefore, if you're at the zoo, you'll be killed by flamingos. Those two things don't actually go together. This premise does not support the conclusion. So what's an example of a sufficient assumption that might fix this argument? Oh, wow. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. This is where the copy ends. One thing I'm thinking about here and I guess we're, we are in evaluation territory and we will be talking more about assumptions and gaps is that the conclusion talks about being killed by flamingos. So I want to see premises that talk about, well, I mean, whether or not you're going to be killed. I don't see that, though. What I do see is that flamingos don't like people. So the most I could say right now, if we ignore our conclusion, if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos and flamingos don't like people. Well, the most they could do right now is going to say, if you're at the zoo, you're going to see something that doesn't like you. What's that thing? It's the flamingos. So if I wanted to make this argument better, one thing I would try to do is say, hey, not being liked by something is enough sufficient to bring about death by that thing. <laughs> So in this case, I would probably add another premise here. And I'd say like, okay, not only if you're at the zoo, you're going to see flamingos. Not only do flamingos not like people. In addition to all of that, if you see something that doesn't like you, then you will die. <laughs> and actually, even that would not be enough. No, uh, then you would, they you, would you, kill you. Would, you. You, would have to, you would have to add the, you'd have to be more specific. You'd have to say, then you'll be killed by that thing. The thing being referential phrasing, flamingos. <laughs> What an absurd argument. I know, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. <laughs> what were we thinking but when we did this? <laughs> I think we were probably talking about you being scared of flamingos, and I just forgot about that. But besides the point, so that is an assumption that would be sufficient to getting us to our conclusion. If an animal doesn't like you, then they'll kill you. So that's something that, if it's true, fixes our argument, we can get from premise to conclusion 100% of the time. Now, that's a sufficient assumption. There are also things called necessary assumptions, things that just have to be true in order for my argument to work. It doesn't necessarily mean that my argument will work, but if this thing isn't true, then the entire thing falls on its head. So an example of a necessary assumption for our flamingo murderous rampage here is that flamingos are capable of killing people. It's not something stated in the argument, but it is a necessary assumption because if flamingos are not capable of killing people, oh my God, then you cannot be killed by flamingos. Okay, yeah, that, that would hurt the argument for sure. Exactly. So those that's an example of a sufficient assumption. That's an example of a necessary assumption. And it goes right back to what we were talking about. Like the sufficient assumption is enough to trigger the necessary. And the necessary assumption is something that will happen if everything else is true. So this thing has to be true. Flamingos have to be capable of killing people in order for my argument to even begin to start to work. And what makes that a necessary assumption instead of a sufficient is that just because you're able to kill something doesn't mean that you will. So the the fact that flamingos are able to kill people, well, maybe they're just very temperate flamingos. And they don't like you. But that doesn't mean they're going to go out and kill you. And that's why it's a, a that's a necessary assumption. You have to be able to do that. But it doesn't mean you will. Where the sufficient or something be enough being enough comes in is by saying like, hey, look, if you don't like something or if a thing doesn't like you, then you will be killed by that. It, it forces you. It, force, it forces the flamingos to, to kill you. How would a flamingo kill someone? Like, don't they just have, like, they stand on their one little leg? Like, what mechanisms do they even have? Do, could they bite you? I don't no, know. Like, they peck. Maybe, like, I'm allergic to pink. 
something like that <laughs> anaphylactic shock maybe you know what that's that's a better way of thinking about it <laughs> all right well that brings us basically to the end of the episode i'll recap just super briefly again i'm stressing these things as much as i am because i really do think they are essential to mastering this test and really improving at a pace that won't make you absolutely lose your mind so we talked about what makes an argument premise conclusions context that evidence you need something to support the claim that you have we talked about conditional statements and a necessary assumption a sufficient assumption what those things mean indicators referential phrasing and then if any of those things confuse you listen back to our little flamingo argument and see if you can identify the different parts of it on your own if you can do that i think you're in a really really good place now henry we have a closing line that i am sure you wrote down because i would never say something this awful but i'll let you close us off with what's on the page here (laughs) don't make me (laughs) Oh my I god. Insist. I insist. <laughs> well, you know, Asta, anything flamingos on the Seven Sage LSAT podcast. And that's a wrap. See y'all next week. <laughs> <laughs> For more LSAT study tips, visit sevensage.com. See you next week. <laughs>